Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. Uh, I want us to take a moment to pray together uh, for our world and our, the leaders in our world who are making decisions for people who are on the receiving end of so much violence and terror right now. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you taught us to pray this way, to ask for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. And now they're just more evident than it was a few days ago how broken our world is and how many places in our world are so dark and need the light of your kingdom. We particularly together want to join our voices and our hearts and our faith with your followers all around this world today who are praying and praying hard for the situation in Ukraine. We pray first for our brothers and sisters there, for they are many. There are many Baptist believers there just like us, as well as others of other denominations and traditions, and they're your followers, and they love you, Lord, and they're suffering, and we lift them up to you. We also have brothers and sisters in Russia, and I know they are probably troubled very deeply by what they are seeing take place, and we ask you to be with them as well, help them to have wisdom. We pray for those who already are trying to make the effort to deliver humanitarian aid to the hungry and the, those who need water and those who need shelter, for the many thousands of refugees that are crossing borders into other countries. We pray, God, that they would find hospitality and welcome and find their needs met. We pray, Father, for wisdom on the part of the leaders in the West. We pray for our president and those who advise him. We pray for the leaders of the nations of Europe. We pray for others who are contributing to the decisions about how best to respond to the situation. We pray for patience on our part. We are going to be likely inconvenienced in one way or another economically. Help us not to complain, but to remember how deep the suffering is halfway around the world. And God, our prayer is that you and your power, you who crush swords and melt weapons, that you would bring these hostilities to an end. We pray that it would be sooner rather than later. We ask, God, that you would keep us mindful as we watch the news and as we listen in to be in a spirit of prayer for the end of all of this. We pray in Jesus' name that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Jesus spoke with the voice of a prophet. I don't mean by that that he foretold the future. Sometimes he did speak of the future and what was to come. But often Jesus spoke with the voice of a prophet like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Amos or Joel, one of those prophets who spoke truth to power. Jesus often spoke out against the political and religious powers that be, often. And you know what? They crucified him. 
That's what they do with prophets. Well, that's what we do with prophets. They did not crucify Jesus for teaching us to be nice and love each other, you know. You don't get crucified for things like that. The Sunday school Jesus would never have been crucified. He'd have had a PBS children's show with a purple dinosaur, but he wouldn't have gotten crucified. The powers that be crucified Jesus as a political revolutionary. They nailed him to the cross for saying that this world and all of its powers were being undone by a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. They pierced him for challenging their abuse of power, their injustice, their abuse of their wealth, their prostitution of God's temple, their inhumanity, their failure to submit to the rule of God. He spoke to them about those things, and that's why they crucified him. The placard over his head on the cross did not say he was just too nice and he wanted us to be nice also. The placard over his head said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was claiming the presence of a new kingdom that was dawning that would undermine and overthrow all the powers that be. Maybe in the Christmas story, the only person who truly understood what was going on was King Herod. Because when the Magi came from the east and said to him, we're looking for the one who was born as king of the Jews, he knew that his jig was up, that another king was being born that would undermine his kingdom and his power. And so he sent off emissaries to have those children killed. The lesson is, if you want to be popular, support the status quo. Don't challenge it. Go along with the powers that be. Speak up on their behalf. Tell those that they're oppressing to get over it. Sprinkle the blessings of God over the head of Caesar and his delegates. But don't dare challenge it. Don't speak truth to power. They crucify people who do that. The prophet Amos said in Amos chapter 5 verse 13, the prudent will keep silent in such times for the times are evil. He said, if you know what's good for you, keep your mouth shut. Don't speak truth to power. That would be pretty wise advice in these divisive and polarized times in our own country and in our world. Don't be a prophet. Jesus clearly was. The text today is one of those prophetic passages, and it's a challenge to listen to, I'll admit to you. If you would uh, give it a shot, though, it would be helpful. This is Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard anyone with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. He said to them then, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. 
Maybe that text doesn't strike you as particularly prophetic. That's probably because over the years, we have watered it down and diluted it and drunk from it just to teach us. It's a text Jesus was teaching us to be nice, to be good citizens, pay our taxes, obey the law, um, serve on the jury, do those kind of things that are appropriate. Those, now, those are important things to do. As we'll talk about Christians ought to be decent citizens in the place where they live, but that's not what Jesus was talking about when he said this. It was something much stronger than that. We've read it and preached it in such a way that it supports the powers that be much more than Jesus intended it to. That was not the intent of his statement to say, be good Christians, support the powers that be. Jesus never taught us simply to be nice, but that's mainly the diluted Christian ethic in our world that Jesus just wants Christian people to be nice people. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of Christian people around today that if they would just shoot for being nice, that would be an improvement. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. Jesus never called us to niceness. He called us to radical love that loves the stranger, that loves the enemy, that loves the person who's different than we are. Not, not just to be nice to people. And his call in this teaching was not just to be nice. He taught us to have a radical love that looks like the cross and to follow him wholeheartedly. His statement was intended to be evasive, and it was. See, the Herodians and the Pharisees thought, we've got him now. We'll ask him if it's lawful to pay taxes or not. And if he says, yes, pay your taxes, then we've got him as someone who is uh, supportive of these oppressors, the Romans or who are here with us. And if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, why, we've got him then too, because then we can turn him into the authorities and saying he's causing, he's revolting against Rome. And so Jesus very quickly did this evasive tactic. Give me a coin, he said. It's kind of interesting that the Pharisees, who were devout keepers of the law, were carrying around in their pants pocket, a coin with a Caesar's image on it, and Caesar was believed to be a god in the Roman world. They were literally carrying an idol around with them, but uh, they gave him a coin. Jesus took it and looked at it, and he said, I want you to tell me, whose image is that? And he said, why, why, it's Caesar's. He said, whose inscription is that? It's Caesar's. And Jesus said, if Caesar wants his money back, give it to him. But give God what is God's. That was an important statement to make. Jesus was, as he conceived it, we are citizens of a different kingdom. We are not citizens of Caesar's kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. He is Christ, the Lord, the king of that kingdom. And our ultimate loyalty belongs to him and to him alone, not to any earthly power, ruler, or authority. We serve the Lord Christ, Paul says. And so that makes us, you and me, in biblical terms, where we live right now in the United States of America, or if we lived in the Ukraine, or if we lived in Russia or South America somewhere, it makes us strangers and aliens here. Just as people who come from other countries to this country are aliens or strangers here, we are strangers wherever Christians live in this world because our citizenship 
is in heaven. Paul says that in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. The church is an outpost of heaven. We're sort of like an embassy here. This isn't our true home, but we are an embassy, citizens of another kingdom, living in this kingdom for a time, representing that kingdom. And we are, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there we are expecting a savior the Lord Christ. We await the coming of our King, and He's not coming to take us out. He's coming to take over. The kingdoms of this earth, all of them, will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, Scripture says in Revelation. So meanwhile, while we're here, we're supposed to be good visitors in the place where we're living. Uh, submit to the appropriate demands of the civil authorities, whether they were ancient Roman citizens or whether they're modern constitutions or courts or congresses or presidents. We're supposed to be good visitors here and submit where we can within our conscience. But what we must not do, and that's what Jesus was getting at, we must not do is confuse the simple issue of loyalty. We can serve only one ruling power ultimately. The service of Christ will teach us to submit to the service of ruling powers as far as possible, conscientiously. But Christ never tells us to yield our allegiance to any power other than to him himself. We give Caesar what is due him, not because Caesar says so, but because Jesus says so, and we are followers of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. We have to keep that in mind. Loyalty is a simple thing. I mean by that it can't be divided. You can only give it to one. You can't piece it out to one person and then another and then another. Out of loyalty to God, we place all of our heart, love, and allegiance in his hands. Jesus was clear about that on so many occasions, that allegiance to God supersedes all other. Loyalty to God supersedes all other. Jesus is Lord. That was the central confession of the earliest church, and it was a political statement, believe it or not, not a religious one. Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul says, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Acts 2.36, really the very first Christian sermon preached after Pentecost, Simon Peter spoke to the leaders there in Jerusalem, and he said, Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. We hear the words Lord or Christ as religious titles in our world because for 2,000 years we sort of used them that way. But we need to hear what they really meant. Christ was not Jesus' last name like he was the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. He wasn't Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ means Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Ruler. That's what Jesus Christ means. 
the essential confession of faith, Jesus is Lord, would have been heard in that New Testament world by non-followers of Jesus as a political confession because the basic political confession of that world was Caesar is Lord, Kaiseros Kurios. And the Christians said, Jesus Kurios, Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord. It was a challenging, revolutionary confession that followers of Jesus were asked to make. And people did hear it that way. In the book of Acts, the story is told of how Paul and his crew went into the city of Thessalonica and they preached the gospel there. And they were charged with revolution, charged with turning the world upside down because they proclaimed a new king, Jesus. This is Acts 17. When they could not find them, they dragged, these are the, they as the, the authorities in the city. When they could not find Paul and his crew, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. Even the term gospel in the first century world was a political term. It meant the announcement that a new king was on the throne, a new day was dawning, uh, there was a new ruler to submit to, uh, emissaries would be sent out into the world to announce that when a new emperor was seated. And Jesus used the world in just that same way in, when he came preaching in Galilee. Uh, Mark 1.14, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. There's a new king on the throne. So Jesus' words here in Matthew 22 really are political. As resident aliens living in this foreign kingdom, give Caesar his coins if he asks for them. They're his anyway. Give to the earthly powers what they rightly deserve. Jesus uses the word image there. Whose image is on there? And when he does that, he is echoing Genesis chapter 1. Whose image? Caesar's image. Then give Caesar that which bears his image. And he says, give to God that which is God's. Echoing Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28, where God said, let us make men and women in our own image. And he made, made them male and female. In the image of God, he made them. The image of God. Caesar's image is on a coin. Give it back to him. Where is the image of God to be found? It's to be found in the human life, the human heart. And if Caesar ever asks for that which belongs only to God, do not give him that. Give to God the things that are God's. Give to God the human heart with all of its loyalty and all of its love and all of its affection and all of its obedience. It doesn't belong to Caesar. That's Jesus' prophetic statement. When he says, give to God the things that are God, he is calling us to bow and worship him alone. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And anything, time, that Caesar asks for that which belongs only to God, the human heart, the conscience, the will, then Caesar in all his forms, in every place he exists, is to be resisted. The earliest Christians understood that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 19, the authorities, the powers that be, told Peter and John, you're no longer to preach or teach in this name. Peter responded in chapter 4, 19 of Acts, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
Our allegiance, our loyalty is in a higher place, and you have no authority over us in this matter. Jesus is dealing with a deeper matter than merely separation of church and state, which sometimes this text has been used to deal with. We need to understand Jesus is dealing here really with a clash of powers. There is the kingdom of God, and there are what the New Testament calls the powers that be, the governing powers in this world. And both of them want the loyalty of the human heart. And Jesus is saying, Caesar has rights that are due him, but Caesar has boundaries that he cannot cross. Responsible citizenship to Caesar is a duty of those who follow Jesus, but ultimate allegiance belongs only to God. Jesus had once said earlier, we cannot serve God and mammon. Here he says, give the mammon to Caesar if he wants it, but give him nothing that belongs to God. Because you can't divide your loyalty like that. The state, the powers that be, are not final. They're not ultimate. They're not divine. Their authority is derivative, derivative from God and limited. Scripture calls all the rulers of this earth dust, insignificant, raised up and brought down in a moment. They're not to be relied upon. They're not to be given our allegiance or our loyalty, Scripture says. And when the church ever yields its allegiance to a government, any government, government silences its prophetic voice. When the church yields allegiance to a political party, any political party, it loses its capacity to speak truth to power. Jesus, as Messiah, fulfilled these three key roles. We sing about them in some of our hymns, that he was prophet, priest, and king. And all three of those roles, he, in a sense, delegates to his church on earth, the body of Christ, the body of the Messiah. We have a priestly role as God's people. Uh, we uh, have a pastoral role in our society. We are to be concerned for the broken, the hopeless, the least, the last, the lost. We're to be involved in that as salt and light in our world and caring for those folks like that. We demonstrated by mercy and compassion and services Jesus did. We have a priestly role. And Jesus calls us to have a kingly role in the world, extending his rule. We are the people of the Messiah, the King, the body of the Messiah, the ones over whom he rules and reigns. He rules not as the Gentiles do, but uh, with power, but as suffering servant. And he calls us to extend that reign, to make disciples of all the nations, to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a kingly role to play. Revelation says he's made us both kings and priests in his kingdom. And we have a prophetic role in society to be the voice of God speaking up for those whom the prophets usually speak up for. The poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, the oppressed, we cannot do that when we're part of a system whose primary concern is the rich, the powerful, and the influential. The church has to maintain its independent prophetic voice in order to fulfill our role as God's people here. And we lose that kingdom power when we get in a quest for political power and allow ourselves to be co-opted by one political party or another. The moment we do that, our voice is silenced by that party. We become mouthpieces for human beings who are seeking power one way or another, which is what politics is about in this world after all, isn't it? 
That was one of the, the essence of one of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. Bow your knee to Satan, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, no. Loyalty goes one way, and that's to God alone. Him alone you will worship. And it's too easy for us, you and me, to get caught up in the either-or nature that our culture wants to impose and divide this country and this culture. We can maintain our kingdom power as God's people only by giving up that either-or and giving ourselves to a neither-nor perspective. Jesus is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. Jesus pledges allegiance to no political power. He is Lord. He is Lord. He speaks to both parties in our culture, not for either, and neither speaks for him. He is Lord. His church speaks for him. When the church allows the state to co-opt us, we allow the prophetic voice of God to be silenced. How does that happen? How do we give up something so important? I'm afraid sometimes out of our fear, we just become too gullible. We hear someone using our vocabulary and we think they use our dictionary also. They use the word God or Christian or religious or some other religious language. And the next thing you know, we think they're, they must be for us. I thought a lot about that claim that our world makes sometimes to use the word Christian as an adjective, whether we're talking about Christian music or Christian art or Christian bookstores or Christian yellow pages, if you can remember what those were, or Christian nation. What does it mean when we use the word Christian as an adjective? It's never used as an adjective in the Bible, by the way. It is used as a noun. In Acts 11:26, disciples are called Christians first in Antioch. Those who follow Jesus with all their heart are called Christians. Acts 26, 28, Paul's preaching to King Agrippa, and Agrippa responds and says, you're trying to make me into a Christian, aren't you? You want me to submit my heart and life to the rule of Jesus like you have and follow him. It's a noun. 1 Peter 4, 16, Peter speaks of those who are suffering because they are Christians, because they are following Jesus. In the New Testament, Christian is a synonym for being disciple, of following the ways of Christ and the will of Christ and living his life and learning from him. It's a word that's used to describe people so devoted to Jesus Christ that they name his name, they suffer in his name. Their loyalty was undivided. Christian in the New Testament is the designation for someone who bows their knee to Jesus as Lord. And to use the word Christian as an adjective, as it's come to be in our world, it's terribly out of place, nearly always out of place. It's not a mere adjective describing things having to do with God or morality or nice people. It's a specific noun having to do with having one's faith in the crucified, risen Christ, taking up one's cross and following him. That's how the New Testament understands Christian. Christ and Caesar to be as distinct in our minds as they were in Jesus' mind. We must maintain our prophetic voice as representatives of the kingdom of God and not allow ourselves ever to be captured by any political party, person, or power. We can do our part to work through the system to bring God's justice to bear on the oppressed, but we must not allow ourselves to be co-opted by any. There is no Christian party, Democrat or Republican. There is no Christian nation. There are powers that be, and there is the kingdom of God, and we need to be clear about that and which of those our loyalty lies in. And, and while we're here, to be excellent model citizens as visitors in this place. I try to be a good citizen. I... 
pray for my country and its leaders as Scripture commands us to do. I vote regularly. I serve jury duty when I'm asked. I contact senators and congressmen occasionally on, when there are issues that concern me as a follower of Jesus. When I contact them, I tell them that's why I'm contacting them, that as a follower of Jesus, this concerns me. I know that I am a debtor to brave men and women who have served this country politically and militarily to assure the continuation of the liberty that I enjoy. I love when traveling to come back to passport control and hand my passport and to hear them say, welcome home, Mr. Creech. But before and above that, my desire is, however well I make it, to seek to be a Christian in the full sense of the word, not a Christian to distinguish what I believe from Buddhists and Muslims and others, but a Christian as one who has seeked to follow Jesus as Lord above all else. Our knowledge of Christ and of his word causes you and me to ache over the pain, the war, the poverty, the hatred, the violence that results from a society that refuses to acknowledge his reign, yet wants to have his name over all they do. We must remember that as the church we are the people of God. We have a cause to speak to our world and to offer a gospel and to offer truth. The Lord Christ has commanded us to be involved in bringing his reign to bear on this earth, to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. He told us we are salt and light. We work and pray for the well-being of all nations, not just our own. Loyalty is a simple thing, Jesus said, not easy but simple, indivisible. It can't be apportioned a bit here and a bit there. It all goes into one place, into something. You can't give it to God if you've already given it to mammon. You can't give it to God if you've already given it to a father and mother, Jesus said. You can't give it to God if you've already given it to Caesar. It is simple and indivisible. Give God what is God's. It's a call to take our heart's loyalty and invest it in the lordship of Christ above all else. It is a call not to allow Caesar ever to co-opt that loyalty, to silence the prophetic voice of the people of the Messiah, to sway with power the people who express the Messiah's kingdom on earth through service. It's a call to live under the lordship of Christ here in this world in a practical way. Oh, be a decent citizen by all means. Have respect for our leaders and pray for them. Jesus and Paul and Peter all taught us to do so. Give Caesar what rightfully belongs to Caesar. But Jesus calls us to something higher, something deeper than decent citizenship in this world. He calls us to submit our lives to God, to give our loyalty to the crucified and risen one who rules over all peoples of the earth, all nations, and who calls his people, the church, to take that good news of his reign to all the world, his justice, his peace to all nations of the earth. One of the last things he said to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew was, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we address you that way, not as mere religious rote language we've grown accustomed to, but because we here confess you as Lord. Lord Jesus, our lives and loyalties are so often divided. These days it seems to be particularly so. 
We don't want to surrender our claims to be Christians, but neither do we want to lay down our allegiance to politicians, parties, and power. Our hearts have often been impossibly divided. Forgive us, we pray. We've too often trusted in this world's power to give us security, this world's ways to accomplish our goals, this world's values to guide our lives. Our loyalty to you has been less than simple. We want to live well as citizens of this country you've placed us in, but we want to do so as aliens and strangers, people whose heart and loyalty is firmly settled in our true home. We need your wisdom and leadership to live this way. And we want to live with each other as true citizens of heaven. Help us to find our common ground in that loyalty to you. Teach us to love one another as witness to our polarized world, divided, it seems, sometimes beyond healing. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia who are facing the horrors of war. Help them as they seek to remain faithful to you. We pray for brothers and sisters in Christ in Central America and Africa and the Middle East whose worlds are turned upside down by violence and unrest, by drugs and oppression. May they and we live in confidence of your present reign and your more full coming kingdom. We pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.